We begin reading with Matthew 6, 5. And the very first thing that Jesus said about prayer was he taught what prayer was not. And he said some startling things. One of the things I focused on last night was it says in Matthew 6, 5 that hypocrites love to pray. And um, that just shocks people. You know, prayer has become something that you just don't touch. This is so sacred. And yet, you know what? Prayer is one of the areas that you can get into a tremendous amount of religious junk. And it's uh, a problem in the body of Christ. So last night, we begin to counter some of the misconceptions about prayer. And I said this last night, but I want to say it again for those of you that are uh, new that I'm entitling this a better way to pray. It's not the only way to pray. It's not if you don't pray this way, you're wrong. Because none of us have perfect revelation of anything. And you know, there's times that, man, everything I'm teaching against, I've done it one time or another. And yet I loved God and God loved me. And so I'm not saying that you're all terrible and things like this. If, If you were taking it that way, well then when I counter something that you're doing or some belief that you have about this, you'll immediately reject it because you'll say, well, I know God loves me and God still um, answers my prayers and deals with me. Well, praise God for a loving Heavenly Father. And I tell you, there's times that He's He's been awesome to me when i prayed stupid prayers. But I tell you what, stupid prayers will get you stupid results. It'll get you bad results. There's a better way to pray. And so we started talking about some of those things last night. One of the things we dealt with was that the Scripture, Jesus said specifically that you are not heard because of your much speaking. Long prayers are not better than short prayers. The amount of time you pray isn't the focus. Jesus never taught that. And this is common in the body of Christ today that basically people are saying if you'll just pray long periods of time, everything will work. There's multiple reasons for that, but most of the time when people are preaching something like that, the way it's received and put into practice in people's life is that people get to relating God answering their prayer to their performance, to how much they've done. And the moment you move into that mode, you've moved out of faith, and grace into works, legalism, like God owes it to you, and that'll kill your prayers in a hurry. That is not true. God, you cannot approach God that way. You cannot manipulate God into answering your prayers. You don't deserve it. And I know that there's some of you saying, well, I would never do that. And yet I've had people come to me by the thousands and say, I've prayed and I've prayed. I've done this. And they tell me all the things they've done and say, how come God hadn't answered my prayers? You've told me why he hadn't answered your prayers. Because you didn't talk about what he did for you. You've talked about what you've done for him. And prayer and spending certain periods of time and going through devotions, those can be some of the biggest areas of bondage in Christian's life. Thank you for that thunderous silence. It can. Is there anything wrong with devotions? No, if you do it as a discipline. And if you'll say, God, I know that you don't love me more if I'll do this. And you don't love me less if I don't do it. But I need to discipline myself. I'm an undisciplined person. And if I'm not careful, the cares of this life will take control. And I'll go days without spending any time in the Word. And so because of that, I'm going to get up at 6, 7 every morning. I'm going to read the Word. If you do it to discipline you and say, God, this is for me, well, then that's great. But you know what? Most people 
do all of these things because they believe God demands it. And if you fulfill it, then you get to feeling smug about yourself and look what I've done. That's not scriptural. It just doesn't work that way. Anyway, I could go back and re-preach all that. Here in um, Luke chapter 11, look at these verses. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And we dealt with Luke, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13 last night, which is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Here it is again in this passage of Scripture. It's a little abbreviated in Luke's account. It says in verse 2, He said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then in verse 5, here's the point that I'm wanting to get to. Jesus uses a parable here that has been commonly taught uh, prayer from this parable. And the thing that is most often taught from this parable is exactly the opposite of what Jesus was saying. And I think that we need to go through this uh, to be able to verify some things. Here in verse 5 it says, He said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Now this is commonly taught that God is like this friend. And that you have to go to Him, and when you have a need, you go to Him and you ask Him for that need, and the first time He may say no. He may say, I'm not ready, and you just have to stay after God and stay after God and pray with importunity and request over and over and over again until you make God give you what you need. Now, it may not be said in those exact words, because that's pretty, uh, you know, open, uh, blatant. But basically that's what's taught, importunity in prayer, that you have to just bombard the gates of heaven. And here's another twist on it. They'll basically be saying the same thing, but they'll say God won't answer your prayer by yourself. So what you've got to do is get other people and you've got to get joint prayer and then you've got to get a hundred million people praying for revival. And if we'll just bombard heaven, then praise God, God will finally let go of those things quiet in here. You know what? There's a lot of people that actually believe that. That's not what this is saying. You know what Jesus is doing? And later on, it'll become very obvious as we continue on through these verses. But if I had you up here, if I had any person up here, and if I was talking to you one-on-one, and if I said, how many of you have a friend that if you were in need and you went to them at midnight, and just because it was inconvenient for them because they were already in bed, they would just yell out the window and say, I'm in bed. My wife and kids are in bed. Leave me alone. Go away. How many of you have friends like that? Here's somebody over here. Raise their hand. Well, you know what? I'm just telling you that that's not a friend. That's not the way friends treat friends. You might know somebody that would treat you that way, but they aren't a friend. 
In other words, you know what Jesus is saying? He's using a physical example here. And he's showing us that if a friend would treat you better than this, why do you think God has to be badgered and begged and pleaded with to do something? People treat you better than this. And yet God, the creator of all, our heavenly father who sent his son to bear our sins, who loves us much greater than anybody else could love us, why would we think he is less disposed to move in our life than a friend, a physical person who's evil and has all of these problems. The point that he's making is you wouldn't expect a man to teach you this way, treat you this way. And even if you could envision somebody because it was inconvenient for them saying, leave me alone, come back tomorrow, I'm in bed. Even if he wouldn't give it to you because he was his friend, just because of the fact that he was late at night just to get you out of his hair, he'd give it to you. You have more faith in people treating you good than you do in God treating you good. He's not teaching you that this is the way that God is. God's not going to treat you like this. What he's using is not a comparison. It's a contrast. You know, I use this logic all of the time. I remember a man right here in Colorado Springs who was on his deathbed called me. Don Crow and I went over and ministered to him nearly every day for months. And uh, anyway, it's a long story. But this guy was just having trouble believing that God was going to heal him. And yet his wife was there and she was praying for him, loving, crying over him. I mean, she was so compassionate towards him. And one day, to make my point, I just said, do you think that if your wife had the ability to heal you, that she wouldn't do it because of, you know, you didn't read your Bible or you weren't the man that you should be? Or Do you think that there's anything in your life that would cause her to just let you die because you haven't done something right? And he got a little offended and he says, no way. He says, she'd do anything. She'd die for me if she could. And I said, and you think God Almighty loves you less than your wife does? And see, the point I was making is he had more faith in his wife's love for him than God's. I've used that exact logic on people. That's what the Lord is saying right here. He's not saying that God is like this friend who has to be badgered and you've got to grab hold of God and not let go until God gives you the thing that you asked for. That is against God. That's an insult to God. And yet that's the attitude that most of us have been taught and many of us have been employed in our prayer that you just got to stay after God and God for whatever reason may not be prone to give it to you but you can make God do it I can tell you what you aren't going to make God do anything if God hasn't already supplied your need by grace your faith can't make him do it faith does not move God that's different than a lot of people think But I tell you what, God's not the one that's stuck. He's not the one that needs to move. God isn't the one that needs to move. God's already done everything. He supplied your need before you ever had it. He made the supply before you had the need. God's never taken, uh, you know, by surprise. The Lord has already healed all sickness and all disease before you ever had the problem. It's not like God's got to go out and provide the answer. God has already done His part and we don't have to beg him or plead with him. God's already done it. He's, matter of fact, it's not like God is up there with his arms folded saying, beg a little harder. 
You aren't serious enough. You need to suffer a little more. You hadn't suffered enough. See, that's kind of the attitude that people have. God's not like this. God's like this. He's trying to get his blessings to you. God is trying. God, if the Lord did not have to have our cooperation to see his power manifest, there would be zero sickness. There wouldn't be a person in here that has to wear eyeglasses. There wouldn't be a person in here with a cold. There wouldn't be a person in here with an ache or a pain, an allergy. God is willing to meet all of our needs. He's already done it. And I guarantee you, God is trying to get healing to you. God is trying to bless every last one of us. You don't have to do anything to plead with God and to beg for God to pour out His power. God wants revival in America more than we want it. And the way that we have been taught that we have to just plead and plead and plead and beg with God for revival is absolutely wrong. And I, you know, as far as I know, I'm the only person saying this. Now, I'm sure somebody else is saying it. I'm sure they are, but I've never heard it. I'm a lone voice as far as I know. I don't hear anybody saying that. Everybody's just talking about, oh, let's pray for revival. Pray for God to pour out His Spirit. You know what that's saying? That God is responsible for the dead condition of the church in America. And if God wanted to, God could just pour out His Spirit. Miracles could start happening. People would be revived. Our churches would be full. Our, our government would change. The attitude would change. We'd reverse this cycle of all of these terrible things going on. And all God's got to do is just lift His little finger and then boom, the power of God's poured out. That's wrong. God isn't holding back and saying, I'm not going to bless America because you haven't done what I've wanted you to. You've taken the Ten Commandments off of the Supreme Court building. You've done this. And man, see if I'll move. God's not like that. God is trying to bless this country. God's trying to do everything He can to move. And it's not a matter of begging Him and getting God motivated. When you start saying, we got to pray and, be and beseech God to pour out His Spirit... You know, without you saying it directly, you are slandering God. Saying God isn't moving because He's ticked off at us because of our sin, because of something else. And what we've got to do is plead for mercy. Wrong. I can tell a lot of you really agree with that. You're just looking at me like, where is this coming from? The Lord loves us. The Lord's not ticked off. God's not ready to judge America. I used to say if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But now I say that if God does judge America, he'll have to apologize to Jesus. Because Jesus atoned for our sins. Sodom and Gomorrah was before Jesus. There's a difference. God's not ticked off. God's not ready to judge this nation. Does that mean that this nation then is just secure and we won't have any problems because God's not going to judge us? No, we're self-destructing. We're ruining ourselves. We are giving Satan place. And I guarantee you, if America doesn't turn around, we are headed in the wrong direction. Things are not looking good. But it is not God who's causing the tragedy. And it's not God who's forsaken us. And it's not God who's not pouring out His Spirit. It's us who've turned our back on Him. And what we need to do is repent and turn. But we don't need to plead with God to pour out His Spirit. And I'm going to go another direction, but I need to say this. Let me just, I'm going to, well, yeah, I'm not even going to promise you this because it's not going to be quick. I started to say I'll quickly do this, but that would be a lie. So let me just, let's turn over here to uh, 
Genesis chapter 18. And let me give you a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant way of praying. And again, most people believe the only difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is one white page in the Bible. They don't understand the difference. But man, it made a huge difference in the way that everything works. So in the 18th chapter, we find where God came down, promised Abraham some tremendous blessings. And then at the end, he he, uh, told Abraham that he was going to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent his two angels down there and he says, if things I've heard are true, I'm going to destroy them. And so here's Abraham standing before God. Let's start reading with 23. In verse 23 it says, And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You know, this is bold. Abraham talking to God and basically saying, Aren't you better than this? Don't you have more integrity than this? Would you do something like this? That wouldn't be right. i tell you what, this is not a good way to pray. Now, Abraham... Abraham got by with it and it was okay because it was a different covenant. And Jesus had not atoned for us. I'm trying to reserve myself because I really want to make a major deal of this tomorrow night. You know, I'm, I just, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get this out one way or the other. If you come, if you come all week long, you'll eventually get this. But you know what? This was wrong for a New Testament believer to plead with God this way. It was okay for Abraham because God was angry at sin in the Old Testament. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. And you know, people are taking these examples and saying, God's mad and if America doesn't repent, God's going to judge America. It's not true. There's a difference between this. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's he's not going to do that same thing today. God's not going to judge America. Thank you for that thunderous silence. I know many of you are being taught this. Many of us were taught that September the 11th was God's judgment because we haven't served God and this is God giving a wake-up call and if we don't repent, man, there's going to be widespread things and terrible things are going to happen. That's not God. The Lord's anger has been appeased. It was not appeased at this time and so He went down and He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He judged them and did things. But in the new covenant, there's a difference. Jesus made a huge difference. But before Jesus, you know what Abraham was doing here? Abraham was a mediator. The word mediator, according to the dictionary, means a person who stands in between two parties who are uh, angry at each other, have a um, dispute with each other, And a mediator seeks to reconcile these two parties who are opposed to each other. God was holy, man was unholy, and because of that, there was a justice and a wrath. It was right to release it, and God had to have intercessors to say, Turn from your fierce wrath and repent. That's what uh, Abraham was doing. Moses did this exact same thing in the 32nd chapter of Exodus. 
In the 32nd chapter, God got so mad. He says, Moses, get out of my way. Leave me alone. And I'm going to destroy all of these people and start over. I'll use you and make a brand new nation out of you. And God and Moses told the Lord in Exodus chapter 32. Let me just read this to you. Some of you aren't going to believe this if you don't read it. Hold your finger in Genesis. Who knows? I may be back there. In Exodus chapter 32. Man, I got, I got four places marked. Running out of fingers. In Exodus chapter 32. Verse 10. The Lord said, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. Boy, there are some powerful things here. You know, God is saying, Moses, leave me alone so that I can do what I want to do. Subtly, he's saying, Moses, you have power with me. And if you go to pleading with me and begging for mercy, you're going to keep me from executing my wrath. Boy, this is just, this is amazing. That Almighty God would even take into consideration us. But God is such a God of love. And He loved this man Abraham. He had made a covenant. He had told him that, man, I honor you and I bless you. Not because Abraham deserved it. Abraham was willing to let a man take his wife and commit adultery with her just so he could spare his own hide. Abraham wasn't the most noble guy. I guarantee you if he was around today and if he did something like that today, all of us would think he's a scoundrel. Abraham didn't do it just once. He did it twice. Abraham made some serious mistakes, but God had given his word to him and he honored that. God had put honor upon him. And because of that, God was saying, Abraham, my covenant with you, I have sworn. And if you stand there, you can stop me from doing what I really want to do. That's amazing. Not because Abraham was worth it, but because God is so just and so holy. He gave us that kind of privilege and honor with him. And so anyway, he says, get out of my way so I can do what I want to with these people. And here's what Moses said in verse 11. Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Here's Moses telling God, repent. God, repent. Man, this is just amazing. Boy, the nerve. This is amazing. And you know what's even more amazing? Look down here. In verse 14, it says, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do. Here's a man saying, God, repent. Don't you realize that the Egyptians are going to hear what's happened and they're going to say, well, God was able to bring them out of Egypt, but he wasn't able to bring them into the promised land. He's too weak. This isn't going to look good on your resume, God. Repent. <laughs> and God repented. This is amazing. And you know what? You'll hear people teach on intercession and say, that's what we're doing. We're saying, oh, God, repent from your fierce wrath. Don't pour out your judgment on America. People say, well, what's wrong with that? Abraham was saying, God, if there's 50 righteous, would you destroy that, 
The entire city, if you find 50 righteous, and God said, no, if there's 50 righteous there, I won't do it. He said, how about 40? If there's 40 righteous there, I won't do it. How about 30? If I find 30 righteous, I won't do it. How about 20? How about 10? He finally got down to 10. And it turned out that there weren't even 10 righteous people. There was only one righteous person in Sodom, and that was Lot. And anyway, God went ahead and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But you know what? God supernaturally responded to people's intercession like that. And you will hear people today teach that this is what we've got to do, that God's ticked off, God's angry. Man, we are sinners. We've got sin in our life and God is angry and He's ready to judge America and He's not going to heal this person until they grovel in the dirt, until they repent or until an intercessor gets there and pleads for His mercy. And basically this is how prayer is being taught, that you have to go to God. He's like this friend who's saying, don't bother me, I'm ticked off at you. I don't like, you hadn't been seeking me, you deserve whatever you get. And God is just not prone to answer our prayer and we've got to beg and we've got to plead and stay after God until God pours out His Spirit. That's wrong. That is absolutely the wrong attitude in prayer. And yet I bet you that every person in here to one degree or another has been influenced by that attitude and prays with that type of attitude towards the Lord. Do you know that is so offensive to God? You aren't trusting Him. You aren't believing what He's done. Over in, the, in uh, Numbers chapter 16, I won't take time to turn over there, but in Numbers chapter 16, you find where Korah, Dathan, and Abiram came out against Moses and challenged his authority. And so Moses... Yeah, it's a long story, but they just wouldn't cooperate. And finally he got mad and he says, if these people die a natural death, then you'll know that God didn't send me. But if a brand new thing happens so that the earth opens up, swallows them alive into the pit, them and every, everything that belongs to them, then you'll know that I'm a true man of God. Well, that's quite a test. And immediately the earth opened up, swallowed Korodathim and Abiram, 250 men who followed them, all of their houses, their things. And then the earth closed upon them. And man, the people just ran in terror. The next day, all of the Israelites assembled and says, You've killed the people of God. And they got mad at Moses for it. And while they were uh, criticizing Moses, the glory of God appeared in the cloud over the tabernacle. And Moses saw it and he told Aaron, he says, man, God is upset. Again, the Lord told Moses, Moses, get out of my way so that I can destroy these people. And so Moses told Aaron, go get a censer and put some coals off of the fire, which symbolizes prayer. That's what this incense was, was sweet-smelling incense, prayer that rises up before God. Take these coals and put them in this censer and run into the people and uh, stand between the living and the dead and the plague will be stayed. And as he ran into the crowd, he ran past the dead people and he finally got in front of the plague and stood there and when the plague came up to the censer that Aaron was holding, then the plague was stayed and God's wrath was appeased. And I've heard people use that exact example from, from number 16 and say that God's wrath is poured out and destruction has begun. And if we as intercessors will stand there and say, turn from your fierce wrath, we can stop God from pouring out His power, His wrath upon this nation. We can, we can preserve this nation. Basically, that is what is being taught and called prayer. And that is absolutely wrong. In Galatians chapter 3, the scripture there says that the law was given by angels and ordained in the hands of a mediator. It called Moses a mediator. 
Again, a mediator is a person who stands in between two parties who are angry at each other, disputing, and tries to reconcile them and appease. Moses was a mediator. But look at this verse over in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you can get this, this is going to absolutely change the way you pray and everything else. 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's talking about prayer. In verse 1, it says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In the new covenant, Jesus is the mediator that stood between God the Father and man. And Jesus atoned for our sins, not only for the people then, but for the people of all time. Sin is no longer a problem with God. It has been atoned for. God is not angry. God is not ready to destroy America like he did Sodom and Gomorrah because Abraham interceded and Abraham got God down to where if there was only 10 righteous people in the entire area, God would have spared them. Don't you think that Jesus did at least that good? Don't you think that Jesus could intercede and negotiate with God at least as well as Abraham did? If Abraham got God to where he would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah for only 10 righteous, I guarantee you God is totally been appeased through Jesus. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. It was appropriate for Moses to pray the way he did because Jesus hadn't come. God wasn't appeased. God did have wrath. And sin had to be judged. I agree that sin has to be judged. What I'm saying is that Jesus bore our judgment. Not only for the past sins, not in his day, but also for our day and for not only for your past sins and your present sins, but even your future tense sins have already been borne by Jesus. Jesus suffered the wrath of God, was separated, and now Jesus is the only mediator between God and us. And if you try and be a mediator like Moses was a mediator, like Abraham was a mediator... You are anti-Christ. You're against Christ. You're against His work. You're trying to take the place of Christ. If you're saying, oh God, please have mercy. Don't pour out your wrath. You just push Jesus aside and say, Jesus, I know you atoned for us and I know that you dealt with this and you are the only mediator, but you know what? I think I can help. And it's going to take me pleading in all of this. And you're trying to add to what Jesus has done. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, but Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And if you in prayer are trying to intercede the way Abraham did, the way that Moses did, the way that it was done by other people in the Old Testament, then you are not esteeming what Christ has done for us. And you are trying to become a mediator. 
Brothers and sisters, the examples that we've been given in the models of prayer, if you'll listen, especially spiritual warfare and intercession, they all go back to the Old Testament and take these examples, which are amazing examples. I've got to admit, but you know what? It's not for us today. God is not ticked off. God is not in a bad mood. God's happy. God is blessed. His wrath was poured out on His Son and it satisfied His wrath so much that God's not angry at people. Does this mean that, you know, because God's not angry that therefore we don't need to be preaching to people? No, God has made the provision for everybody and it's available, but they've got to believe for it to work. If they don't believe, well then the wrath and the judgment of God is still there. And people, if they don't accept Jesus as their Savior, they will go to hell. The devil... God prepared hell for the devil and his angels. It was never made for men. But if we choose to identify with the devil and not accept salvation, try and work it out on our own, we will partake of Satan's judgment. God never intended this. He doesn't will for people to go to hell. But there is justice. And if a person doesn't accept God's payment, they will go to hell, not for their individual sins. People think they're going to go to hell because, man, they're a homosexual or because they've drunk or because they've been a dopehead or because of this. No, your sins have been forgiven. The sin that's going to send you to hell is if you don't accept the payment for that sin. It all revolves around how you respond to Jesus. When you get to heaven, God's not going to say, all right, so what about this sin? What about this sin? What about this sin? What about this sin? What he's going to do is say, what have you done with Jesus? And your relationship to Jesus, whether you have bowed the knee and made Him the Lord, is going to determine whether you are accepted or rejected. And those who rejected Jesus then will be held accountable for their sins because they didn't accept God's payment and they will be judged for their sins. And they will have to answer for those individual sins. But the only thing that's really an issue is what have you done with Jesus? Jesus has paid for our sins. Jesus has satisfied this and the whole church as a whole is, is not understanding this. And we've still got the impression of God like an Old Testament God, ticked off, angry, and we've got to intercede and stop God from doing what He really wants to do and judge these people. And we've got to beg and plead with God for His mercy. That's absolutely wrong. That is not what the Scriptures are teaching. I want you to know God loves you. You don't have to beg and plead with God. Man, that's awesome. If all of this be true, which it is, many of you are saying, well, so what's the point in prayer? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to answer that later. (laughs) Not tonight. I'm going to... You know, I've got a scent here. It's like a dog on a trail. And I picked up a scent. And I'm going to stick with this tonight. But tomorrow or the next night, we're going to talk about what the real purpose of prayer is. But prayer is not so that you can turn God from His wrath. So that you can be like this friend who says, I know you don't want to give it to me, but I'm not leaving here until you bless me. I'm not leaving here until I get what I want. Man, you said that by your stripes I've healed. And I'm not going to stop until you heal me. Boy, I tell you, that is, that is just not esteeming Christ. You don't have a clue that God has already paid for everything and God loves you and God is wanting to give you everything. If you'd go back to Luke chapter 11, let me go back and see if I can pick this up. This is exactly what the Lord is saying. After He said all of these things, He's not 
saying that God is like this friend. He's making a contrast. You wouldn't expect a man to treat you this bad. God loves you much more than that. After he gave this parable, look what he said in verse 9. Right after this parable, he says, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And then he goes on to say in verse uh, 10, For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And then he uses this same logic again. He's using physical relationships to make a spiritual application. And he says, If a son shall ask bread of any that is a father... Will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? See what he's saying? He's saying, how many of you, if your son asks for a piece of bread, are you going to give him a stone? Are you going to hand him a piece of stone and let him bite into that and ruin his teeth? How many of you would treat your children that way? How many, if they ask for an egg, you're going to give them a scorpion? If they ask for a fish, you're going to give them some kind of a serpent that can bite them. If you wouldn't treat your children this way, why do you think that God is going to sit there and not meet your need? He says, on the contrary, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? See, it's exactly opposite the the mindset that most people have in prayer that God is against meeting our needs. And we've got to beg and we've got to plead and we're so ungodly that God's a little bit ticked off, got His arms folded, I'm not giving you anything. And we just got to plead and beg and stay after Him until we wear Him down and eventually God will give it to us. That's not what He's saying. He's saying the exact opposite of it. And yet people have taken these exact passages of Scripture to teach that you just have to have importunity in prayer. You've got to stay on God's case and not let Him go until God gives you what you want. Boy, that, that's a rotten attitude. Look in the 18th chapter of the book of Luke. Here's another passage that people use to teach this exact same thing. Chapter 18, verse 1, And He spake a parable unto them. To this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And people will use this and say, God is like this unjust judge that isn't prone to answer you the first time. But this woman just kept after him until he finally says, I'm going to have to give her what she wants or she's not going to let me rest. I've got to give it up. And they say, that's the way God is. And you've got to just go in and grab hold of the horns of the altar and shake it until God comes out. Man, you've got to just make the power of God operate. That's not what this is saying. God's not like the unjust judge. What he's doing is, again, a contrast. He says, how many of you could see this happening with an unjust judge? You know what? I don't have a huge respect for our judicial system in the United States. I think they are doing some serious rewriting of what the intent of the Constitution was. And 
I just don't hold them in a very high regard. And yet, even these liberals, I think, would treat a person better than this. I can't imagine something this bad going on in our society today. This is just totally, you know, beyond measure. This is out of reason. And so he's using an absurd example. How many of you could see a judge treating somebody this way? And even if you could see it, well, the woman just would wear him out and he'd have to give it to her. In other words, you would trust to get better service from our judicial system than most people believe that we're getting from God. You put more faith in a judge than you put in God. He's making a contrast here to show the absurdity of the way that we think about God. And then he says in verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Some people take this as this is talking about that God will avenge you, but he will bear long with you. Sometimes it takes a long time, and you just got to ask and ask and ask and ask. Sometimes it takes a long time, but... God will eventually answer you. Well, then, you know, if that's the way you interpret this, verse 8 means it makes no sense at all. It's talking about God will avenge His own elect, which cry unto Him day and night, though He, this unjust judge, bear with them long time. God's not like that. God is going to avenge them speedily. You don't have to beg God and ask God over and over and over. But then the rest of the verse goes on to say, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. The problem isn't God's willingness to give. It's not his ability. It's our ability to believe. We approach God as if he's an adversary. We approach him as if he doesn't want to answer our prayer. We approach him with less respect for God than we have for our own parents. You would expect your parents, your neighbor... You would expect a judge to treat you better than we expect God. We approach God as if He's just... We've had such a bad picture of God presented that God is just willing to let babies be born with birth defects. It's God that put cancer on you to teach you something. It's God that caused this building to burn and all the people die because they own a pornographic shop. And it's God's judgment on them. And we, this is the picture of God that we've been presented And we think that as Christians, what we've got to do is stand in between God and plead for His mercy and beg for Him not to judge America. We've got millions of people signed up to plead for God's mercy and to take the place that Christ has already occupied. Amen. I know some of you aren't being blessed by this. Some of you are probably on those prayer chains begging for God's mercy and asking God not to pour out His wrath and you've been sucked into this, but I'm telling you, that's not God. God is not the one that we are having to plead with and ask Him for His mercy and to turn from His wrath. And see, if this is the image and if this is the attitude that you have in prayer, then you're approaching God in an adversarial relationship. You're approaching God in unbelief. You're approaching God already impugning His character, already slandering Him. You're approaching God not esteeming Christ and thinking that what Jesus did isn't enough. Jesus, I know you made intercession, but get out of the way. I'll do it. And you're taking the place of Christ. And then you're wondering, why aren't my prayers working? Well, man, it's a wonder that we aren't a pile of ashes. It's only because Jesus did such an effective job that God hadn't got ticked off and angry at us for the way that we approach Him. 
we've believed the lies of the devil. We've got a wrong image of God to where God is an adversary and we have to force him and make God heal people. And we have more compassion for people than God does. Again, let me say, I, everything I'm saying to you, God has said to me. I've been guilty of everything I've said to you. When I first got turned on to the Lord, man, we bombarded the gates of heaven. We were going to make God pour out His power. And I remember during one of those all-night prayer meetings, man, I was screaming, beating on the wall. I thought the louder was better. You know, God's deaf. you got to yell. And man, I was screaming. I was hitting the wall. I was doing all of these things. And I actually had this come out of my mouth. In front of a group of people, I said, God, if you love the people in Arlington, Texas, half as much as I do, we'd have revival. And as soon as I said that, my lightning fast mind realized there was something seriously wrong with my theology. Man, I just stopped in my tracks and I said, this isn't right. But you know what? This is where most intercessors are. Most intercessors are pleading with God. Oh, God, please love these people as much as I do. You wouldn't put it in that word, but that's what you're doing. You believe that God's angry. God will let them die. God will let them go to hell if it wasn't for your great prayers. If it wasn't for you, God wouldn't heal anybody. Man, you are pleading with God, and you're the one that's making God turn. Absolutely wrong. Brothers and sisters, God loves people infinitely more than we do. And if you love people and if you want to see this nation turned around, if you want to see somebody saved, I'm telling you it's because God's already touched your heart that you even have that desire. That's not the nature of man. Nature of man is to be absolutely selfish and don't care about anybody but yourself. If you have a compassion to see other people, it's because God's already working on you. God's the one that gave you that compassion. God stirred you up not so that you could plead with Him to get as merciful as you are, but rather He's he's pleading with you so that you in love would start going out and doing something about it and releasing the power of God. You know, I haven't got time to teach on revival and all this stuff tonight, but I've I've made some statements here that need to be answered. But you know, I want to see people's lives change. I would love to see the same hunger, the same desire, the same passion in seeking after God in America that is happening in other countries in the world. But I'm telling you, it's not because God hasn't poured out His Spirit on America. You know what it is? It's because America is so preoccupied with their DVDs and televisions and VCRs and going to the beach. And we spend, our, we spend more as a nation on entertainment and sports equipment and stuff like that than the gross national product of many nations. We are consumed with just, we lust for all kinds of things. And you know what? We just hadn't got time for God. It's not God who's holding back His outpouring. God is trying to move in the states, but you know what? He does it through people. God doesn't pour out His Spirit independent of people. He told us to go out and heal the sick cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. But you know what the church is doing? Instead of doing what God told us to do, we are praying for God. Oh God, pour out your spirit and heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. We're praying for God to do what God's already done. God's already put that same power that raised Jesus from the dead on the inside of us. And he told us to go do it. 
It is not time for God to pour out His Spirit. God has poured out His Spirit. It's indwelling every born-again believer. What we need to do is start speaking the truth to each other and encouraging each other. And you go out and you raise somebody from the dead tomorrow. And then tell all of the people that were standing around when it happened, says, you want to go to a meeting and find out how to do this? I guarantee you, we pack this place out. We don't need to pray for God's power to be poured out. God is wanting to do it. What we've got to do is start believing and going out and doing it, and the signs will follow us. I'm going to say something here that I know many of you are going to be shocked, but you're, you're already upset, so <laughs> I haven't got a thing to lose. But I believe that Satan is the one that is behind much of the teaching on prayer in the body of Christ. The way it is being presented, it puts people in their prayer closets not valuing what Christ has done, trying to take His position, telling God to repent, God, pour out your Spirit, trying to get God as merciful as they are, all of this stuff that just totally destroys your impression and understanding of God, and it keeps you in your prayer closet praying for an outpouring of your Spirit when your neighbor's going to hell and you haven't got time to go talk to him because you're begging God to pour out His Spirit. You ought to be out there talking to somebody and demonstrating it, healing them. Commanding healing to come in their bodies. Thank you for that thunderous silence. It's a ploy of the devil. It really is. Let me give you an example here about a, a person being saved. I've had people come to me, thousands of people, and say, Brother, how come this person's not saved? I've been praying for them for 20 years and God hasn't answered my prayer. You know, it is a sorry attitude. Sorry attitude. If I was God, the spirit of slap would come all over me. Man. Some of you are thinking, well, what's wrong with that? Well, first of all, you think that another person can get saved by your faith. That cannot happen. You can't get another person saved on your faith. Somebody's thinking, well... Acts chapter 16, verse 32, the Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Did you know it's commonly taught that you can claim that scripture that not only you're going to be saved, but your whole house. Claim your whole house, your relatives, and you claim their salvation. You cannot claim a person's salvation. That's not what that verse is saying. It's saying... He told the Philippian jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And your house, if they'll believe, they'll be saved. It'll work for anybody. That's all that he's saying. You can't claim a person's salvation. If you could, then you know what? We ought to quit teaching on anything else and we just ought to teach on this one thing. Make all of you claim your relatives for salvation. And then when they get saved, make them claim all of their relatives and pretty soon we'd have the whole world saved. We could just claim the whole world if that's true. You can't do that. You can't get another person saved off of your faith. They have to believe on God personally. And it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that you are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the Word of God that lives and abides forever. You know what? You've got to have a seed planted. All of us in the natural realm acknowledge that. But in the spiritual, we're going to just claim this person and they're going to get saved. They cannot be born again without the Word of God entering into them. They have to conceive salvation and be born again. 
And so instead of us sharing the word and telling people, we've got people in their closets praying and interceding for a person to be saved. That's not the way to do it. Let me say it this way. That Jesus never organized prayer warriors and intercessors the way that we see modeled today. It was never done. You cannot find a scriptural model for prayer and intercessors the way it's done today. There is no scriptural model. That usually goes over about like that. <laughs> there isn't a scriptural model. Jesus never sent his disciples out to intercede over a city and prepare the ground and do all of this stuff. There isn't a scriptural example of it. He did send forth his disciples, 70 before him, to go in and publicize that he's coming. They didn't have radio and television, newspapers, so he sent out disciples and told them that Jesus is coming and spread the word and told about what miracles were happening. He did do that, but he never ordained intercessors. Paul never had intercessors. He told people to pray for him. There is a right use of prayer, and if you can stick with me all week, I'm going to talk about it, but I'm talking about this abuse tonight. Paul never organized intercessors that held up his hands. I have people come to me all the time, who are your intercessors? I said, I don't know. I don't have any intercessors. I'm sure that many of you pray for me and I appreciate it, but you know what? I don't have paid intercessors. Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. Peter didn't. Nobody in Scripture who changed the world ever had paid intercessors. This is only a new thing that's happened in our day and age and it's just foolishness. <laughs> Praise God. Again, the, reason, the logic behind this is that there's demonic powers up here that are holding certain areas in, de in captivity and you've got to bind the strong man and break this power before you can go in and preach the gospel. Jesus didn't do it that way. Paul didn't do it that way. Now, am I saying that there aren't demonic powers? No, I believe there are demonic powers. I've seen demons come out of people. I believe that there are demonic powers over Colorado Springs. I believe there's demons in this room. Some of you thought, oh, yeah, it shouldn't be. You should have pled the blood and kept them all out of here. <laughs> you can't do that kind of stuff. Did you realize that Satan attended the Last Supper of Jesus? It says that after Jesus dipped the bread in the sop and handed it to Judas, then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. Satan was present at the Last Supper. Now, if Jesus couldn't keep Satan away from his communion meal, what makes you think you can? This thing of binding all of the demons. I was at a church one time that pled the blood over all the thresholds and over the doors and the windows, and if the devil could have gotten into that meeting, he would have been a saved devil because he'd have had to come through the blood. That is religious foolishness. Only Christians would fall for something like that. You know what? An unbeliever would never believe that. You have to be half superstitious to believe some of the weird stuff going on. If, I, if we were to keep all the demons out of here, this place would be about empty. It's true. Did you know depression is demonic. The Bible doesn't make the distinction between oppression, depression, possession. The word in the Greek is just demonized. You know what? If you're depressed, you're demonized. You got Satan messing with you. If you're sick, many sicknesses are demonic.
And there's so many other things. If we were to bind all demons, if you could keep them out, this place would be about empty because many of us have got demons that hover around us and afflict us and do all kinds of things. You can't do that kind of stuff. It's weird, all of the stuff that we come up. If you could do that, well then, you know, if I could bind the demon out of this room, well then let's get all the people in here and with our corporate faith, let's just increase it and bind all of the demons from a five mile radius of here and then go out and blitz those people, get all of them saved, filled with the Holy Spirit and then get them to agree and let's bind the demons from all of Colorado Springs. And then once we get all of Colorado Springs saved, let's bind the demons from Colorado. And once we get all of Colorado saved, let's bind the demons from America. That's, it doesn't work that way. You can't do that. You can't get a person saved against their will. You can't cast a demon out of a person against their will. And yet this is what we're teaching in prayer. Claim their salvation. Bind the demons over this. And we aren't preaching the Word. We don't understand that the Word has to come to a person and the Word has to enter into them and change their life. We're thinking that our prayer is going to get people saved. They come, why hasn't God saved them? I've been praying. Well, did you ever take into account this person may not want to get saved? Did you ever think that this person is enjoying their sin? Did you ever think that they're under demonic deception and they really believe that being a Christian is a bad thing instead of a positive thing? So have you gone and told them the truth and countered the unbelief? There isn't an importance put on telling people the truth. There isn't an importance on getting the word to them. Let's just get everybody to pray for an outpouring of God's Spirit so that we won't have to witness, so that we don't have to go out and suffer the possibility of rejection. Let's ask God to do what He told us to do. I tell you, this is not God that has led the body of Christ into 100 million people praying and begging God to pour out His Spirit. If we had 10 people out doing the work of the ministry and raising the dead and seeing blind eyes open and speaking the truth... That would do more good than a hundred million people begging God to do what He's already done. And while I'm on it, <laughs> Colorado Springs is the center of so much intercession and things. They've organized these groups that go over to uh, Ephesus and they went into the um, amphitheater in Ephesus, 20,000 intercessors to go over and bind Diana of the Ephesians, believing that that is the demonic spirit that is holding all of the Muslims in bondage. So 20,000 intercessors paid all of this money, went to the amphitheater in Ephesus to tear down Diana of the Ephesians and end her reign so that the Muslims could be saved. That is ignorance gone to seed. Anybody miss that? Was that too subtle? How did Paul deal with Diana of the Ephesians when she was worshipped? And it was one of the seven wonders of the world, this image that they said fell down from Jupiter. And they worshipped this image. And there was multitudes of people coming to the uh, temple in Ephesus. How did Paul deal with that? He never told the disciples to pray against Diana of the Ephesians. He never led a praise service to bind Diana of the Ephesians. They never did spiritual warfare. They never did spiritual mapping. They didn't do any of it. They didn't go back into the history of Ephesus to deal with all of the things that had happened over that history and to apologize so that God could finally move. You know what they did? 
they preached the truth, that there is no other God but Jesus. God the Father and Jesus is His Son. And they preached the truth. And because of that, they nearly stoned Paul to death because they said the whole worship of Diana of the Ephesians is uh, about to be abandoned because somebody preached the truth and told them the truth. Am I saying that there wasn't a demonic power that operated through this worship of Diana of the Ephesians? No, I believe there was. But how did they deal with it? In prayer? No, they told the truth to people. You know why demonic powers over Colorado Springs have power? Because people believe their lies. And we empower these demons. These demons don't have power to dominate and control anybody against their will. They have to have our cooperation. When we believe a lie, we're the ones that empower them. People say, well, in San Francisco, I know that there's homosexual demons that control that area, and we've got to get intercessors in there to bind these demonic powers of homosexuality so that those people can be set free. Why do you think there's homosexual demons over San Francisco? Well, people think that the homosexual demons caused all of the homosexuals to be in San Francisco. No, it's the other. You know what? They got some people elected to government positions who were homosexuals, and they began to start passing laws that favored, favored homosexuality, gave special status to them, gave breaks, welfare, marital benefits to homosexuals. And because of this, homosexuals started flocking to uh, San Francisco, and they brought the demons with them. It's not the demons that brought the homosexuals. It's the homosexuals that brought the demons. And I don't doubt that there aren't demonic powers of homosexuality over San Francisco. But you know the way you deal with them? is not by rebuking that. It's by telling these homosexuals the truth, getting them born again, find out that God made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Get them set free from that, and the homosexual demons will have to go somewhere else. And yet we're approaching it that, oh, it's all this other stuff, and... It's just weirdness. Man, there's some super weirdness in the body of Christ. And I know that I know that I've stepped on some people's toe, and I know that there's many of you who love God and you are as sincere as you can possibly be, and yet you've bought into some of these things that I'm saying, and right now you're feeling offended and feeling like I'm sitting here saying that you're all wrong and all this. I am saying that this is the wrong approach, but you can be sincere. But you can be sincerely wrong. And God loves you. And God has seen your heart. And God is, is taking what He can and using it. But I tell you, this is the wrong approach. There's a better way to pray. And if you would start honoring God and saying, Father, thank you that you love America much more than I could ever love America. Forgive me for feeling like I've got to make you love people as much as I do. God, forgive me for my arrogancy. Forgive me for taking the place of Christ and trying to become a mediator between God and man. And Father, I know that you love these people. And so I just want to offer myself here as a vessel. And God, show me who you want me to speak to today. Give me wisdom. Real quickly, I, I know I've gone long, but this is just a big subject. I don't know how to cover it any quicker than what I'm doing. I'm, I've cut out a bunch. Let me just say some things real quickly. Here's how I believe you ought to pray for a lost person. I'm going to give you some scriptures, and if you'll do this, I believe this is the scriptural way to pray. First of all, you pray 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. 
And that verse says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them and they should believe and be converted. So in other words, there's demonic deception in a lost person. So the first thing I do is I start praising God, first of all. Father, you would not have any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. So, Father, you already love this person. You love them more than I do. I don't have to beg you. I just thank you that you love them. But I know that there is demonic deception involved. So I sit there and say, I bind this blindness in the name of Jesus. Now, again, this doesn't remove it, but it will give a temporary relief. The person, the individual, has more control over their life than I do. But if they're in deception, you need to break that deception. Now, here's the difference. When you're praying for healing like for yourself, you only ask for it one time. If you ask for it twice, you didn't believe God gave you your answer one of those two times. But when you're praying for another person, this deception does exist, so you rebuke it, but the person has the right to void your prayer. God could begin to convict them and they think, man, what is this? I've got a feeling like, man, I need to go to church. I need to start studying the Bible. I need to get back in fellowship with God. This must be the devil. Give me another drink. And they just voided your prayer. And so they turned from that. And you know what? It's not that God didn't answer your prayer, but they voided it. So you've got to pray that prayer again. You've got to pray and pray and pray until you see the manifestation. Not doubting that God answered your prayer, but realizing the other person is voiding your prayer. So you bind the blindness, the deception over them. Then you remember that they've got to be born again, not of the corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible seed, the Word of God. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 23. So you start praying Matthew 9, 38. It says, Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. They've got to hear the word. So start praying for the word to come across their path and say, Father, I believe that they are tuning in right now. I'm speaking my faith and I'm releasing your power to have them tune in to television, radio, listen to tapes, send a laborer across their path. Let there be a spirit-filled believer walk into the bar right now. Let somebody minister to them. God, send somebody to their workplace. Let the person in the next cubicle be a spirit-filled believer. I'm releasing this and releasing your power. Now again, God wants to do this, but God has to flow through people. So he needs a person with a physical human body to do it. If the individual isn't inviting God into their life, they need an intercessor who is inviting God, not pleading with God as if he wasn't already in love with them, but just somebody who will speak it and release these things. And you need to offer yourself. Don't ever pray for somebody else to do what you could do. Man, if you can speak to somebody, go speak to them. Tell them the truth. they got to hear the truth. The truth is what will set them free. So you pray the truth across their path. Then you pray uh, John 14, 26 that says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, when He has come, will teach you all things, lead you into all truth, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I've spoken unto you. So pray that God, if you know they aren't listening to radio or television or any of these things, bring back to their remembrance the things that they've already heard. God has been dealing with every lost person. I guarantee you God has put roadblocks in their way. God has been speaking to them. Pray that God, if nothing else, bring back to their remembrance scriptures that they learned when they were a little kid. Bring back to them some scripture. John 3, 16, use it. And you pray a quickening of these verses to them. That's labors across their path. And as the Holy Spirit quickens this to them, 
then praise God, they'll become under conviction. And there's other things that I pray. John uh, um, 2023 about remitting people's sins. That doesn't mean you can forgive their sins. You can't forgive it. But remittance is talking about the effects of sin. You can't stop sin or you can't pray forgiveness over a person, but you can deal with the effects that sin is having in that person's life. For instance, if they're out you know, living an immoral, sexually immoral life. They could be opening themselves up to sexually transmitted diseases and stuff. But here you are praying for them and saying, Father, according to John 20, 23, I can't forgive their sins. They need to receive that on their own. But I'm going to stand against this and Satan, even though they've opened up a door, you aren't going to give them sexually transmitted diseases. I rebuke AIDS. They aren't reaping it. Your prayer can grant them a measure of protection, but they can void that prayer. So then tomorrow, you got to pray this same stuff all over again and keep praying and releasing these things in their life until they have a positive response to it. But ultimately, you can't make them respond positively. What you can do is put pressure on them. You can release the power of God, but you can't make them get saved. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, I believe it was, I'm not sure, but he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How many times of what I have gathered you as a hen gathers his chicks, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Jesus said many times I wanted to bless you and minister unto you, and you wouldn't allow it. Jesus was the perfect intercessor. And if Jesus couldn't convince people, and if he couldn't get people set free through his faith, then what makes you think that you can? All you can do is be a channel for this power to flow and touch people, but ultimately they have a choice. Paul reflected this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says, Don't leave your unbelieving mate because how do you know, O man, whether you shall save your wife? Or how do you know, O woman, whether you shall save your husband? Much teaching in the body of Christ today is you can just claim them and you can make them get saved. Paul said, How do you know they might get saved if you would stay with them and keep interceding for them? Poor old Paul, he just wasn't much of a faith guy. He didn't know about claiming them. You can't guarantee that your mate's going to be saved off of your faith. You can guarantee this, that if you will pray and and do the right thing, you can guarantee that they'll certainly be convicted. God will use you to convict them. They'll hear the truth, but they've got choice whether they want to go to hell or not. God's not going to make them get saved. Man, I shared a lot tonight, but I just couldn't stop in the middle of it. So anyway, if you'll get the tape and go over this, eventually it'll go to feeling good. Amen. This will help you.